You know, I'm sitting here and it's the end of my work day and I haven't had to eat yet. That's a sign of a long day. And I'm trying to watch myself on video eat soup and be as sexy as possible. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or Steph and I care. You get to this stage and you're like, oh, oh boy. Mm-hmm. It's near the mouth. It's near the mouth. Eating on video chat or Zoom or anything is just weird. I was like trying to hide my head earlier today because this happened on a, another work call because <laughs> I just eat all day. And uh, I was like <laughs> ducking away and then coming back. No, no, no. And I, I think that was just as confusing. But anyway, how are you guys? Good. I'm doing great. Are you kidding? Hey, guys, welcome to It Starts With One Small Change. A show where we tell ordinary people's extraordinary stories about how they faced adversity, became unstuck, or decided to start or stop something in their life. One small change at a time. It's 2022, guys. Oh, That's my right. God. Who knows when this will air, but... <laughs> right. But it's all good. It's, it's new. It's new. Yep. Let's just yeah. go with that. Yeah, feeling good. Yeah, so we also wanted to just give a bit of a trigger warning to our listeners here. This is a bit more of a heavy hitter of a show and deals with subjects uh, revolving around domestic violence, sexual assault, and suicidal thoughts. So if you know of anyone or if you yourself are suffering, we'll have links to platforms you can reach out to at the end of this. But just please know that this is going to be a different kind of show today. So thank you for listening. So with that kind of trigger warning, folks, we are really excited in a second to bring on Mary. She is actually sort of related, kind of a cousin to myself and Wade. She is a fantastic gal. She is the kind of girl you would love to sit at a bar with or at a Starbucks. But before we get into the fun stuff, we're going to hit some heavy backstory. So Just so you know, Mary spent really the first 23 years of her life under the rule of an abusive father, coercive control, mental abuse, physical abuse, all of it. She endured abuse from a stepbrother, and because that kind of quote-unquote love was all she knew, she found herself, you know, dating a man who became her abuser as well. We're almost about 10 years past that time, and I am delighted to say that Mary is not just surviving, she is thriving. You're going to hear about all of that good stuff today, but you know, what's interesting to me is even though Mary would have every reason to be angry and hateful, you're going to hear her talk today and find out that she is exactly the opposite. She loves life, and she works hard to appreciate every damn moment. What you're going to hear today is that while, yeah, this is the story of abuse and pain, it's also a story about how finding a better life is possible through travel and opening herself up to new experiences, reaching out for support, finding an experienced therapist. Mary is healing. In fact, as we'll get to later, you're going to find out that what Mary has done is embrace forgiveness. Her one small change, yeah, right, not really small, huh? But of welcoming forgiveness into her life is actually kind of allowing her to live a fiercely beautiful and meaningful life. So with that, we are going to welcome our friend, our cousin, Mary. So welcome, Mary. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Cousin Mary. I'm excited to be here. Hi, everyone. I love cousins, so I'll call you Cousin Mary, too. You can call me Cousin. I like more cousins. We call our cousins Cousins, C-U-Z-Z-I-N. Yeah. Cousin. Cousin. That sounds very Texan. Yeah, Uh, yeah, we're not Texas at all, but yeah. Well, let me get into... Some of the backstory, Mary, right? So we want to set up the picture for folks because honestly, and I know obviously people can't see you right now, but if somebody bumped into you in a Starbucks or met you somewhere, you would, to me, you do not at all come off like a woman who has endured the crap frankly, that you have. You're positive. You're funny. You're the kind of girl like at a party is chatting everybody up. 
people wouldn't know that about you. But if I can kind of roll you back to the first, you know, 23 years of your life, tell us about it. Like, where'd you grow up? What was it like? Yeah, so I I grew up in Louisiana, but from as far as I can remember, like, my raising seemed normal to me. And, you know, from the outside, it probably looked like, oh, this is a happy family. But really, when you were inside our walls, it was very manipulative, very abusive verbally and physically. And you were always constantly, like, walking on eggshells. So... The man who I thought was my father for 22 years, he was just very manipulative and very good at it, right? So people thought he was like this really caring father, but in actuality, he was a monster. He used me as a pawn in my mother's relationship with him, very much so a controlling aspect because I wasn't his child, but I didn't know that, right? So there were a lot of things that were put on me as a child. I had to grow up real quick. And so people can understand like the intensity of it is like, at no point in time, could you leave your room door open? They always had to be open. No, you mean you couldn't leave your room door closed? I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. They couldn't couldn't leave them closed. They've always had to be open. He would listen in on my phone calls, all phone calls I received, even from a young age. You know when, like, you're five or six and sometimes you, like, accidentally wet the bed? Sure, sure. This is how he would punish me, so I would hide my accidents. But the way he would punish me is he would put those underwear on my head and make me wear them for five minutes. Mm. Oh, my God. How demoralizing. What? Yeah. He was a special human. And, you know, it progressed over the years. When memories come to you, sometimes you don't want to believe them. But when I was around like eight or nine, my stepbrother began molesting me. And so on top of having to deal with that, I was also hiding this one aspect. You didn't want the man who you thought was your father and your mother. You didn't want them to know what was going on. I didn't think anything of it, right? I was such a small child that I didn't think, okay, like this is something wrong. Can I interject really quick? Mm -hmm. How old old was your stepbrother? He was six years older than me. So he was early teens, probably 14 at the time. So he knew better. Sure. Sure. That was weighing on me. And the whole time getting through that. And then basically my mother, she just had to always constantly be on guard. So she couldn't really like see those things. Right. Right. Because as a survivor myself, I realized like you're so hyper-focused on just surviving that you can't really pick up on things that your children will probably, you know, little cues your children would tell you or in general, just like 30 minutes ago, what happened? It's literally minute by minute you're trying to survive. Mm, So that was going on, but this abuse like went on and on and on. Like when I was 16, There was a rule in the house that you couldn't have dishes in your room. And I had a cup of water in my room and my door was closed. And he opened the door and he was like, what's that? So you were already in trouble because the door was shut. The door was shut. And they were having like a hard time in their relationship. Like always, it's always up and down, up and down. This was more of a, a down. I was 16, just watching TV, had a cup of water on my dresser drinking it. And he said, what's that? And I was like, well, it's a cup of water. I'm, I'm thirsty. You know, I'm drinking it. And he was like, what did I tell you about dishes in the room? And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go put it up. And he was like, no, too late. So he went and when we would get in trouble, we would get beaten with a boat paddle. So he went and got, yeah. So he, he went and got the boat paddle and decided he was going to give me lashings for having a cup of water in my room. And my mom was very upset and she did try to say stop. But at the end of the day, he just said, basically to the fact, shut your fucking mouth. Mm. And then proceeded to abuse me and for a cup of water. Oh my God. I want to make sure anybody listening like understands this, if this is not something that you've heard about before. This is normal to you. This kind Mm. of, I'm going to call it sort of pervasive stress 
that's affecting everyone in the household. So your mom, other folks that might be coming in and out of the home, mm-hmm. this is normal. And sort of this idea that anything could set him off is very typical. So, and you as a little kid that has grown up into this, you know, believing first of all that he's your biological father, having a mother who was unable to leave at the time, everyone was surviving the best they they knew how, right? Right, correct. I mean, in a domestic violence situation, you're either fight or flight, and the majority of the time, it's just like, I want to say like ghost-faced. Like you're just, yeah. you have to stay complacent and just don't do anything that would set them off. And so you're, you're just going about your day thinking, what can I do so that I won't feel the wrath? Wow, that is, yeah, I don't even have, have words for that. How did your mom act? Because obviously folks in the home know what's going on. But as soon as you're outside, like I know that your mom was a successful business person. And so obviously, or was it obvious, people on the outside, they did not know what was going on. It was really rare. Even family didn't really know what was going on except for Mama B. That's my Aunt B, but she adopted me. So I call her Mama B now. And I think she was the only that truly knew. And also... Maybe my nana, my grandmother, but see, my grandpa wasn't the nicest guy either. So domestic violence isn't like you just, it just shows up. It's like perpetuated generations upon generations. It might be like little antidotes of it, but it can lead to something like this, right? And my mother, she did a good job at like, everybody loved her. She was super sweet. She was super kind. I think a lot of people question why she was with Ray, (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think she knew she was in an abusive relationship. Right. Almost like when you're so far in it, you can't even see the walls around you. Right. Now, what about siblings, Mary? So you mentioned a stepbrother. Mm -hmm. Were there other kids in and out of the house? Yeah. So, well, I grew up thinking they were my half-siblings, but there were a total of four step-siblings. And the oldest is 12 years older than me. And then it goes like 10, six, and four years older than me. So there was a household of kids essentially all under this man, Ray, you mentioned his name, under his rule Mm -hmm. and all living essentially multiple lives. It sounds like there was something going on inside the house. And then when you were outside the walls, something altogether sort of different. Right. I mean, he wasn't just abusive to me. He was abusive to all his children. So, like, you know, he punched one of his sons in the face, point blank, because he said something. He was at home, and my stepbrother didn't know he was at home, and he said something not nice about him. So when he turned the corner, he just punched him in the nose. Wow. Wow. It was a house basically full of, you better do what he says, or there will be consequences that you will not like. You know, were you the precocious, vivacious person as a child that we know now? Were you able to be that at school, and or were you a different person at that time? Honestly, when I was a small child, like before the molestation, I was very, like, vibrant and, and loud. And my mom's side of the family would tell me, oh, you're just full of, like, energy. But, you know, Ray was rarely in the picture. He was there, but not really. It wasn't until after I was molested and after, like, I could really comprehend what was going on in the household, that's when things started changing. I became very quiet, very reclusive. You know, I really couldn't go hang out with people because they'd have to be approved through Ray. So, like, I could do one thing a month. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah, one thing a month. And, you know, you can't really have friends that way in high school. And, like... He just controlled every aspect, money that I would make, like had to go into a certain bank account that he could control, just like my mother. I grew up thinking like, he's not my father. I hate him. Like, I don't love him. I never had love for the man. We'll put it that way. Okay. I didn't start getting back to who I was 
until my mid 20s. That was like a fraction. I feel like I'm getting to the point where I am like who I'm meant to be now. We moved from Louisiana to a small town in Texas in the panhandle of Texas. And that's where I met my ex-husband. So Ray allowed me to date him because I do believe he felt as though he was just like him. (laughs) In Ray's mind, this particular man was like a kindred spirit, let's say. Yeah, for sure. And it started off like fine, very like coddling, tell me things that you want to hear when you're like, 17, 18 years old, and your mind's not fully developed. But then, you know, it progressed to a lot of verbal attacks, right? Verbally, like, you know, I'm not going to love you if you ever get fat. Or, Jesus. yeah. Mm. Or, like, you know, other women want me. I can replace you. Mm-hmm. But you can't replace me because nobody's going to be able to deal with your shit. Whew. Yeah. And, What really is a red flag now looking back and really when you look at domestic violence, the first red flag is when somebody says that they they will kill themselves if if you leave them. And he said that repeatedly, like the second year we started dating and manipulation was key. And I just thought that was normal. Right. Like, sure. One time we were driving. It was like a hop, a skip, and a jump away from Oklahoma. We were going on like a date night, and we had just started dating, and he knew that I wasn't a virgin. And he made me feel as though I was a worthless piece of shit. He told me I can never date or marry someone who's not a virgin. You're tainted. You're disgusting. Oh, my God. I was bawling. I was like, are you going to break up with me? He was like, I've thought about it. And continued and continued for 45 minutes and then we finally get where we're supposed to go and he was like yeah but you know what i'll forgive you oh boy oh oh so like it starts like that you know so it's like little things like that it's not all the time but it's it starts slow and then it progresses and then that progressed into college and even though you know we were living not far from each other in in dorms at university and it's because he wanted me to be close and yeah. he had like my passwords to all my social media. He knew how to get into my phone. He wanted to look at my phone constantly. Mm. I couldn't talk to other men. Cause that means that's flirting. He would say certain things like you're flirting with him. Don't do that. He would get really upset. He would then get intoxicated and be like, if you ever cheat on me, I will fucking kill you. Whoa. So, and then, yeah, and I remember blatantly one time I went to go visit him at university. He held a knife to his neck for a whole night saying that he was going to kill himself because I didn't love him. And I was like, what are you talking about? We were having such a good time. And he literally was like, you don't love me. I'm going to kill myself and it'll be your fault. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, Mary. Mary, were there, like, girlfriends on the scene, like, people you felt like you could talk to, or was this just not touched? You just said everything was hunky-dory. I couldn't have friends. The man that we've been speaking about that Mary dated was dating at this time. We're going to call him Jay. So this is going on. This is what your life is. You're in college. You're dating Jay your mother and and the man that you think is your father, Ray, are, are still together. How old are you, like 20-ish? Just turned 21. So it was this summer after I turned 21. Okay. If I can pivot you, so we're just going to ask everybody to hang tight here on the story of Jay because we're coming back. But can we pivot for a second, Mary, and talk about the time that you go home when you're 21 to see your folks and and what's going on, what happens? Yeah, we can definitely pivot to that. So typically I would go home for the summers after uni just so that I could save money and work and stuff. And this summer was particularly odd. It was just a lot of turmoil and just you could feel the tension in the air. You know, it was just really not a good time for them. And They had some of the grandchildren there, and my step-siblings decided it was just too intense that they wanted the grandchildren back. They didn't want them in that environment. One of them had to fly back. So Ray told me 
woke me up in the morning and was like, I need you to bring him to the airport. And I was like, okay, odd, whatever. So I did it. Because it was at about an hour and a half drive to the airport from where we were living to Amarillo. And so I tried calling and calling home and nobody was answering. And I was like, ah, oh, they're probably just like making up like usual. And then I get home and I had to get ready for work. And it's a two level house. And typically I would take a shower upstairs. That's where my room was. But I had all of my shampoo stuff downstairs. And I was like, I'll just take a shower downstairs. And to get downstairs, it's like a staircase, a platform, and then you turn almost like a 90 degree and then it's a staircase again. Yeah. The, so like a, a split level house. Right. Type thing. Yeah. Okay. And the carpet was like maroon color. So I like turn. And when I turned that 90 degree off the platform, I saw my mom at the bottom of the stairway. And my immediate thought was that fucker like knocked her out. Because she was laying down? Yeah, she was laying down on her side, her back facing me in her pajamas. And so I said, Mom, and then she didn't say anything. And so I screamed her name like two or three times while I was going down the stairs. And at that point, I could tell that there was blood underneath her. So my survival mode kicked in and I went, if he could kill her, he could kill me. And I ran out that house and I was like... In the truck within, I want to say, three minutes and down the road. And I was calling the step-siblings. Then I called my ex's house. And then they called the police. And then that's when the intensity of, like, 48 hours passed by. And it was just like a blink of the eye. Like, the SWAT team came in. There was helicopters. The Texas State Rangers came and, like, interviewed me for 45 minutes And I didn't get a response about what had happened until 2 a.m. the next morning. So you're thinking I got home at like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I didn't get an answer until 2 a.m. the next morning. Oh, my God. And did you know your mom was had passed at that point, Mary? I was like in that state of shock where you just hope for the best, but deep down, you know, so I knew she was dead, but I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe, but it was too late. And my thinking was like, they were like searching for him, like a manhunt. But in my head, I was like, he's such a coward. He would have, he did take his own life. So he like, after I pieced this all together myself So after he killed her, he, like, stepped over her body, put the gun back into the gun case, emptied all his stuff, made a phone call to his mother to say goodbye, and then walked, which he didn't drink for 20-plus years, drank a beer, and then went and killed himself in a deer stand because that's the kind of man he was. So he, I mean, just... (sighs) Wow. Yeah, I feel like everybody needs, like, to take a beat. It was going to be completely different. From then on, you start just thinking, like, what could I have done? Because, like, the night before she told me, like, I think he's going to kill me. And I was like, no, he's not that crazy. And, you know, that line played in my head for years. And I was like, Jesus. But you can't do anything, right? Like, you can't go back in time. So I think there was a lot of sadness at that point because I knew that my life was different. I was alone, basically. Yeah. It makes sense to me then that, of course, you're looking for any comfort, companionship at all possible. So, Mm -hmm. of course, it makes sense, right, Mm -hmm. to go back to Jay, this man that you are dating, who we already have the sense is not treating you properly, normally with love. But you go back back to him. Tell us about that. Yeah. So after that happened, I had the choice to either move to Austin and be with Mama B and my family there. But Jay manipulated me. was like, you know, if you go down there, then we're going to break up and like, you need me right now. And my family will take care of you. And you don't really need that at the moment. You know, you need to take care of stuff up here. So it was a lot of manipulation. So I stayed with them right after for the summer. And then we moved in together in college after that. That's when he started putting his like 
fangs in and his claws in and really his true color started coming out. Like one evening I was crying in the car about my mom and his little brother was in the car too. And he was like, you need to just get fucking over it. (gasps) And this was like maybe like eight months after my mom had been murdered. And he's like, just get fucking over it. You know? So he would tell me that constantly. How were you responding in these moments at this time? Being in this fragile state, being still 22 years old. You don't handle it. Like, I didn't know what to do because, like, I knew what he was capable of. Yeah. Because, I mean, he tried to kill himself in front of me. He threatened to kill me. And, like, he was very violent with his own family. So I knew that I had no response to that. Because Mm. if there was a response, I would get hit, probably. Yeah. Well, that's what you knew. You didn't know any different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I've seen Ray hit my mother a few times in front of me. And I knew if you say something against a person like that, at the time, I just thought it was normal. You just don't say anything. You just bottle it up and be quiet. Because if you do say something, there will be a dire consequence. Right. Yeah. Where in here, Mary, do you find out that Ray was not actually your father. Jay was a basically 101 narcissist psychopath. And Mama B had told his mom. And she was like, but I want to tell Mary. But he jumped in and told me. Mm. Wow. So your aunt, who you now call Mama B, so she knew that Ray Mm -hmm. was not your biological father. She knew forever. But Ray had said, if my mother ever told me, he would... He would basically, you know, kill her, one. And two, he went back and put his name on my birth certificate. Woo! And he said, if you ever tell Mary that I'm not her father, I will take her away from you and you will never see her again. Jesus. Yeah, there was a DNA test back then. So how, I mean, how does a judge know, right? Right. All right, so all of this has gone down. Mama B talks to the family of this man that you're serious with. You live with him. But against her wishes, they, he, Jay, Mm -hmm. decides to tell you, oh, by the way, Ray's really not your dad. What the hell goes through your mind? My first thought was, oh, my God, I don't share, like, DNA with a murderer. That's true. Mm. That's true. All right. I get it. I was like, my God, I don't have the same, like, genes as him. Like, all of his kids are messed up mentally. It was almost freeing in a sense. Yeah. Because I always Mm. knew deep down I had no love for him. Wow. I always had hatred for him. I just felt like that wasn't normal. Yeah. Yeah has all of these insane revelations and just, mm-hmm. I, I don't even, I don't have the words for it. This this heaviness around you, but you're still under Jay's thumb. You're living with him. You're stuck in a town without your own family. You don't have a strong network of friends because of sort of the, the bubble around you that Jay has sort of built. But thank God, a turning point comes. Can you tell us about it? We had gotten married. He really conned me into it. I'm not going to go into all the details, but he was very good at manipulation. So he conned me into it. We got married a year afterwards, almost a year afterwards. We were driving down the interstate and he was always an aggressive driver to the point that it just scared me. Like he was going to kill us one day on the interstate. It was just so bad. And he was just flying on the interstate and cutting people off and got mad at somebody behind us and was just like lashing out. And I calmly stated, please stop. And at that point he reared back and he like punched me backhandedly. I flinched and I put up my, my arm and thankfully I did because I think he would have hit me in the face if not. And he bruised my biceps and my wrist on my left side. And he told me, you stupid fucking bitch. If you ever fucking talk to me like that again, I will fucking kill you. You're not my mother. And then proceeded not to talk to me for four days. Oh. I sleep in another bedroom. And then after four days, he went, you really made me upset. Don't ever do that again. Oh, my God. But by the grace, whatever, you 
happens to be lined up for a trip without him to see family. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. My sister slash cousin, Audrea, she was graduating from university and I wanted to go see her graduate. So I was going to go by myself because Jay hated my family. And so I flew down there and... Prior to that, I had talked to a couple colleagues about it because I was like, I was just at a state of just like despair. And a couple of them had talked about domestic violence before openly. And so I talked to him and one of my colleagues just looked at me and said, why even come back? You need to talk to your family. And it just played over and over in my head. So when I got to Austin, I was really scared. But like two days before I was supposed to leave to go back to Jay, I told Mama B and Audrea and they were like you're not going back and I was like I have to go back I have all this stuff blah 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 and then the day of my flight I like woke up and I was like I don't want to be my mother I don't want to be dead at the bottom of a staircase so so I (laughs) then I just called them said I'm not coming back turned off my phone and proceeded to move on It's always hard to leave. You know, it takes the woman seven times to leave before it's forever, right? And a lot of times you don't get to make it to that seventh time. So I was very fortunate to have a great support group in Austin and to be fortunate enough that I had that, what I can remember, we left twice during my adolescence. And changing your passwords, moving money, making sure... You know, you change your phone number. Like, I was prepared because I had already seen it. So Mm -hmm. those first two weeks were not only survival mode, but protection mode. Like, trying to make sure he couldn't get to me. Mm -hmm. How far mileage-wise were you from him? Eight hours for a drive. Three hours flight. You knew you weren't going back, it sounds like. But when did you say, like, okay, I'm pulling the plug, and he knew that. Like, you weren't going to be his wife anymore. He actually filed for divorce first. Ah. He beat me to the punch because I mm-hmm. was trying to find a lawyer. And his parents did have money at the time. And they got a really good lawyer. But so did I. So. <laughs> good job. Good job. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, he probably figured that out after the first week because I was not answering anything. And then I finally answered and I said, I'm sorry, I will not be answering any of your emails or phone calls. Mm. You will be talking to an attorney. Mm. Good for you. So you kind of beat him to it. Yeah. 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 But you You said the A word first. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) This must have been a crazy time for your mindset because you're opening up to people for the first time. You're unpacking all that. You're probably still afraid to unpack some of it because you're so used to guarding it. Are you having nightmares at night? I mean, what's happening in your in your headspace? I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I still do from time to time. Like, it's still there. Like, loud noises. I still jump, really. And, like, in general. But, you know, had night sweats, night terrors. Anything would just, like, set me off where I would just go into a panic, right? And you have to think, like, just back up a bit. Like, I was going through a hard time in that that point. But before I had left, just before I had left, I was going through suicidal thoughts. Right before leaving Jay, I almost killed myself while I was driving my car. I just like, I can't take this anymore. What's the point of living? I should just like crash my vehicle and die, right? Mm -hmm. So like that went into afterwards too. Like, you know, I'm alone, like, He told me I couldn't find anybody better than him. I'm all these things that these men have told me all of my life. So I'm going through that. I'm unpacking all that. I'm going through PTSD and I'm trying to live a life, right? Because I don't even know what a life is, right? Right, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And you're still, frankly, a kid. You're early 20s. Like nobody knows anything then. Right. And I started coping. And, you know, I now know that I was coping with alcohol for sure. I had Mm -hmm. a bad alcohol coping mechanism probably all the way until my, my late twenties, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's sensical, right? It's something a lot of people do. Yeah. In this first, like, let's say couple years after leaving, where would you say your emotional scale landed on the most? Was it anger, sadness, apathy? Where was it? Where were you at? 
I was saddened and just full of rage and anger, right? I had lost, like, my best friend, my mom. I had lost her. I had seen her body, which once you see one, you can't unsee it. And I had gone through this horrible, like, relationship. And I was just sad that, like, I was put in that position, one. Two, that... I was so angry that I couldn't fix it, right? And that I was just going through my head, like, really blaming myself for everything. Blaming myself for getting married, being in that relationship, not saving my mother, right? Mm-hmm. Not telling her to leave when she needed to leave. All of these things were going through my head the first two years afterwards. Jeez. The first couple of years, you're going through all of this. And then when do you start to think, I'm going to set my eyes on a different pasture here. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so I decided I was going to take a trip by myself around the world. Just travel and enjoy life a little bit, maybe. I was still young, so I was like, let's do this. And that really just brought to my attention that like life is too short. And I, I was still doing therapy even when I was traveling, you know, with my therapist. So I still got that like relief. And I would tell her my epiphanies of like, you know, I can't carry this burden the rest of my life. Yeah. I have to move forward somehow. And I would still just break down crying if I ever told my story. And then I would say a major turning point is when I was living in the UK and I talked to a woman named Melanie Black. And she has an amazing story, but she told me, when you get to a point in life where you can forgive the people who have done wrong to you, you have moved forward. Well, forgive. What the hell? Forgive what? I mean, (laughs) I just, the first time, did did somebody say forgive? Were you like, are you effing kidding me? Forgive? (laughs) I mean, I think I would have told her to go to hell. I don't know. Yeah. Like her story is pretty impactful. And like, I respected her in that aspect. I was like, I don't know if I could ever do that. And a lot of people say that, you know, that's fine. You don't have to forgive them. But That's what helps a lot of people and some people. And so I started talking to my therapist about it and she really had helped me. And she was like, you know, Mary, have you ever just thought about forgiving little Mary? I want to cut back before we get too far into forgiveness here. You're in Europe, you're exploring around, you're you're meeting new folks. And so you're growing, like there's Mm -hmm. significant growth happening. I mean, just tell us about how you come back and who you feel like you are when you land back in the U.S. versus the Mary that left? Yeah, when I left, I was definitely running. Coming back to the States before I came back permanently in 2021 gave me major anxiety. All of my abusers were there. I just felt like I would run into them all the time. So I was running away and not dealing with that aspect. So in Europe, I met some really strong people and people who were just loving and caring and open. And that really showed me that, you know, there are good people out there. Of course, there's evil in the world. There always will be. But you've got to look at how many good people are in there and how many people have struggled. Like I would tell bits and pieces of my story and the responses I would get is, oh, that's happened to me too. Oh, yes, that's happened to my family. Mm -hmm. The level of how many people, when you up and up to them a little bit about what has happened to you, and then the response being like, you're not the only one, right? Yeah. It makes you feel like, oh, I'm not alone, right? Yeah. So, like, going through that process and realizing it, and then just realizing, you know, I need to be with the people I love. I need to go back to the States. I need to be with my family and also maybe just help the community of women and men who get abused, you know, and know that it's not a scary place to come back to. I have another question, just in terms of as a survivor of abuse, you have emotional scars, right, from experiences like that that you carry around. And now you're more in this world of survivors and advocating for others. But beyond your profession and and all that, how much of your scars do you consider you walk around in public showing and ready to talk about at any time versus how much of your story do you still keep close to the chest? I carry around the scars every single day. But do I talk about my story? No, I don't talk about my story. I would say a lot of people don't know about my story that know me. So, right. 
Yeah. But yeah, I carry around those scars and I will for the rest of my life. It's something I have come to terms with and know that every day is going to be work and I put in that work and some days are easier than others, but as long as you just change, I think that's really what's important is knowing that to stay in the present. Well, you're not just breaking the cycle, you're advocating for others to break the cycle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's a nice little segue, Wade. My just genuine curiosity and question here is in regards to what you did when you were running, when you moved to Europe, what was your profession? What were you doing over there? I was a student. So I went and got a master's in the UK. And then Uh I went and learned German in Berlin. And then I moved to Austria and got a double degree master's there. Jeez. I just love the idea of you saying, like, I'm ready to go back to the people I love and had this experience. What made you choose the career path you're on? I can talk about a little bit what I do. But I just wanted to give back a bit to the community. I mean, I think I was ready. I had gone through my personal stuff. I don't think you can be in the position I'm in and still dealing with your any type of emotional issues. I basically work with protection orders against, that's my main thing, but I have other stuff. But in general, protection orders against domestic violence, sexual assault, and child sexual assault. So it's heavy stuff. You know, you are privy to a lot of information, but my job is to make sure that the women or men are prepared for what's ahead of them. It's definitely a tough journey. And sometimes they're good calls and sometimes they're bad calls. And you just take it with a grain of salt because as a survivor, I know they're just rolling with the emotions. I forgave myself first and then, you know, I had to forgive other people before I could get to the point that I am right now in this position. I do it not because I want to save young Mary. Young Mary's already been saved. She's doing her own little thing now. What my hope is, is that I could save another little Mary, right? Someone that's going through the same things and can hear a voice of reasoning who doesn't talk to them like a baby, who doesn't treats them like a human being and says, look, this is shit. You're doing a good job. You're not the only person out there. It's a power control wheel. There's like a manual out there. There are things that I say on a daily basis where I'm just like, you got to pat yourself on the back and give yourself compassion. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think I'm at in life. I had to do a lot of forgiveness though. And I still do. It's not easy every day, right? And some things pop up. But like, you know, I did forgive little Mary for not being able to control things, uh, not being able to say no. Like adults should have been saying no for me, but they couldn't. Yeah, right. Then I had to forgive my mother, right? Because she couldn't be, she was a loving, kind woman and she was a good mother, but she couldn't be there 100% for me and she couldn't save me from that life because she was inundated in it. She was just immersed. So I had to forgive her and she had to make those choices. She made those choices. And unfortunately the consequences were, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate price. Yeah. Yeah. So from that, then I decided to forgive my abusers and I decided to forgive them and what they did to me, because I feel like you can't do the work I'm doing without forgiving your abusers. And that's not everybody's path. Not everybody's going to want to do that. People, all survivors are different. Every survivor is their own. For me, it worked because I knew that if I forgave them, then they had no more control over me. Yeah. And I knew what they truly were at the end of the day. After all the therapy, I finally in my head, know that they are insecure, weak, small little people who don't know what love is and will never know what love is. And that's sad to me. I feel pity for them, actually. And I think at that point in life, I was like, you know, if you live in the past, you will always be depressed. So my past is my past, but it is not who I am today and it won't dictate my future. And if I would not have forgiven them, I feel as though they would still 
been implanted in my life and they still would affect it my present and my future. So yeah, I feel as those steps have really gotten me to the point where I can do what I do now yeah. and in an unbiased manner. And I'm not there to save them because survivors can save themselves. Amen. Wow. Um, regarding forgiveness and all we're talking about, you know, some people physically do something like confronting, writing a letter, calling. What are your thoughts on that? What did you do? Give us your thoughts. You know, everyone's different. And for me, my mental state was like, what's the point? Like, I feel like a lot of people and could be very releasing for some people. For me, I build things up in my mind a certain way I want it to be, a certain outcome and all this blah, blah. I'm like, but is the response going to be what I want? No. Mm. I mean, one of them's dead, so I'm never going to like hear from him ever. His children are completely messed up. They will never admit that they did anything wrong. And Jay, he doesn't even think he's an abuser. So why would I waste my time and my mental sanity to reach out to them and be like, look, this is messed up, blah, blah, blah. They they don't see it. So Mm -hmm. to me, it was a waste of time. Yeah. Right. Because I wouldn't get anything out of it. Right. How has this moment of forgiveness benefited you? I would say it has helped me be open to accepting love again and knowing that love can be healthy and knowing that we all have our, our issues at the end of the day and just to be open about those and communicate. I think forgiveness for myself had just allowed me to plan for the future. Hmm. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. Wow. You got the power back. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I took that power back and I am going to hold on to it for the rest of my life and not allow anybody to take it away from me. What would you say is the one small change that triggered all of this? I would say therapy and forgiveness. I think they go hand in hand. You can do all the therapy in the world, but if you're not putting in the work or the effort, then it's not going to work for you. So I would say the therapy made me start thinking about forgiveness, and that forgiveness changed my entire perception on life and how to move forward. Awesome. Powerful doesn't even begin to describe that. No. (laughs) But that's the word I'm going to (laughs) use. Yeah. We so thank you, Mary. You are powerful, and thank, you. thank mm-hmm. you for sharing your power, not just with us, but with other people, because you are making it a better world, so thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you guys for having such a great platform. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. You're pretty awesome. Yep, and there's just something about Mary. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I knew that was going to come up, right? I, I, you only hear it eight times a week, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably. Uh, As you know, more than any of us, it's hard to talk about this and this kind of stuff and put it out there. And thank you. It's a lot for you to do. And we thank you. And and I'm sure anybody out there that is listening and can reflect or get strength from your story is appreciative, too. So thank you. Very much so. Yes. Mary, we'd also love to have you talk about any platforms or places people can contact that maybe need help and are listening now? People can basically reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That's nationwide. If not, there's always local women's shelters. If you're in the Austin area, the Safe Alliance is where you need to go. Now, if you're thinking of suicidal thoughts, please just contact the National Hotline for that as well. And really just seek out help. It's there and people want to help you. Yeah, yeah. We will link, guys, on our socials to all of these organizations' websites and phone numbers. Mary, thank you so much for being with us here today. What an incredible (laughs) guest you've been. Thank you, guys. Okay. Wow, that was a lot. But Okay, yeah. Everybody needs to hear it, right? Everybody needs to hear stories like that, whether they're Mm -hmm. easy or hard or... I don't want to use the word impressed. I don't want to use the word like she's so normal. I hate that kind of shit but i'm just floored like 
What a remarkable woman. I do want people to kind of realize is, you know, at least on the local stage, when this happened, you know, this was all over the news, right? Like murder-suicide, newspapers, reporters, you name it. I mean, the Texas Rangers were on site for part of this. So the levels of stressors around her, not just at the time that her mother was murdered, but, you know, before and after, astounding. And yet she has found the power of forgiveness. Oh, yeah. Let's, I mean, you know, we had Mary do the big strokes of her story here, but let's just think about all the microaggressions on any given day that she was dealing with, right? Like holding her breath a certain way so that she didn't upset someone or just opening the refrigerator a certain way. Like all those little things that she was probably adapted to and just living that every single moment. And Yeah. yeah. And thinking it was normal, thinking it was... right like everybody else and to have her now be a productive member of society that's shining lights and on other people giving back giving back and being positive force and being a great friend and girlfriend and all those things that she is Mm -hmm. like you said janice she has a total allowance to just be a degenerate but she's not because she's like i'm breaking this thing i'm breaking the wheel i'm breaking the wheel i'm out the cycle yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah really so I think it sounds like the homework for today is about forgiveness, right? We can all reflect a bit and think, who have we forgiven and, and what were results in the past or who should we forgive? That's what I want to think about is, I'm sorry if, if you're listening to this and I don't reach out and say, I'm sorry for what I did to you a couple years ago, but I'm working on it. <laughs> or maybe it's a time in, in your own life where you want to forgive yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah, self-forgiveness is actually, I think we don't put enough emphasis on that in society. That younger right? Mary story was really something. Sure was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's your assignment, folks. We know you might not want to post that kind of stuff on our socials, but that's your homework. That's your challenge. As always, thank you for listening. Please suggest to a friend to listen and check out information about Mary, some photos, all other kinds of good stuff on our socials. It starts with one small change. 